0: You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence Special Broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com.
1: Good to be here. Thank you, Julia, and uh, and welcome to Names Not Numbers. Leo and I are going to do this by, first of all, I think just saying a moment, put, putting some of our own thoughts out there, and then um, ask our panelists to introduce themselves, and then we'll be sharing this in... And, uh, and helping to pull out some of the questions. So, uh, just my own my own perspective comes from working in the venture capital arena um, with digital startups, and so some of the some of the the, the points that I was going to make were really from. From that perspective, I think as we were discussing, we realized that sustainability can be discussed, it can be defined in many different ways. And I think for myself, I just naturally gravitate towards profitability, because I make an assumption that if things aren't profitable, they can't be sustainable. Um, I'm on the board of a company called Vestergaard-Fransen, which actually uh, makes bed nets. They They manufacture and deliver bed nets to the developing world. Um, but they do that um, so successfully and so uh, fantastically that they're able to do a lot of good in the developing world. For example, they just, in the, in the process of, of trying to get feedback on how success, sustainable the bed nets and, and life straws were, they just, in a period of four weeks, got a database of 8 million people in Western Africa together starting to build a, a platform to have a two-way conversation and to create, really, to lift these people up. So they're a for-profit humanitarian development uh, company, which is doing, I would argue, just an enormous amount of good because they're for profit So I believe very much in that purifying flame of profitability. And I just wanted to suggest a couple of themes that I heard I think my panelists are going to echo. I think right now society is being redefined. It's being redefined by its entrepreneurs, by its individual capitalists, meaning not everybody is going to be working in big business. And and I think the, the kids that are under 30 years old don't even think of themselves as working for anyone anymore. So I think that unit of trade is shifting to the individual. I think it's been, society has been redefined by digital business models, and that's central to creating high growth, and high growth is, is what makes society sustainable. And, um, and I think I'll say the rest of my points uh, for the discussion as we go through. Leo?
2: Thank you, Julie. Yep, hello. My name is Leo Johnson, and above all, what I would love, first of all, to apologize for my, my black eye. Which I know is lowering the tone of this beautiful room substantially, and it's, it's quite intimidating for the panelists. So I'd like to ask you to be especially sympathetic for the panelists who have to put up with it. I, I had a, um, a, a thing with a window in which it didn't, it didn't work out. It didn't work out because some people try, some people some people tried to steal my daughter's balloons from the door, and I ran to the window to hur- hurl abuse, but I didn't open the window in time. That's what okay, that's obviously a lie. It was my wife. It was my wife. It, you know, I was trying to say, okay. But anyway, so look, um, I, I had a tiny dysfunctional sustainability consulting company that um, got bought a couple of years ago now by PricewaterhouseCoopers in a process that I now understand was more of a, an acquisition than a full-scale merger between our organizations. Than that was, um, and, um, and, um, and in the last year or so, I've had the huge joy of doing some BBC World documentaries looking at sustainable businesses, which you know, businesses that really are doing the stuff that gives you that tiny glimmer of optimism that business can deliver on stuff. With that, I'll stop, except to say, Juliet, this is the least sexy title I have ever come across in my life. It's impenetrable. It's impenetrable. It's like a lasagna of of, of meaning. You cannot wade your way through it. But the only people I am sure will manage to help us with this is this extraordinary panel that we've got here. So... Our job as co-chairs is is to let them interact with all of us in the room and to get get some thoughts out to try to make sense of this question. So please, over to you, over to you, Matt. Brief introduction
3: first. Okay, sorry. Hi, Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Peacock. I'm the Group Communications Director at Vodafone. I um, joined Vodafone last year, prior to that four years in the oil and gas industry. I've been a regulator in communications for a while, um, been around the telecoms and media business for some time, and I spent nine years as a BBC News correspondent a long time ago.
4: I'm Linda Grattan, I'm the Professor of Management Practice at the London Business School, and I'm currently researching um, a book about sustainable businesses. I'm writing a book, <laughs> not just researching, I'm also writing it. <laughs>
5: Mike Wright, I'm executive director for Jaguar Land Rover um, and the sales push has already been done by Julia so I won't say any more. My whole career has been in the automotive industry and uh, probably 80% of that has been with Land Rover. Uh, And our history is we've had a lot of uh, different owners over over the last 20 years. So I've seen a a number of different companies sort of nurture and look after our our businesses. And of course we're we're with uh, Tata right now. So um, my background is primarily sales and marketing, although my current function is uh, looking after a number of central corporate functions, of which one is this um, unsexy uh, question in terms of how do we get sustainability uh, in, into a business as complex as the automotive
2: world. Okay, so that's who we've got. And Julie, I propose that I mean this man here is like the, he's doing this for Jaguar, which is like a national slash international treasure. He's like the opposite of the parasite, the least parasitic person you can imagine. He's making British, well, internationally British cars. So it's a superhero, (laughs) complete superhero. So, you know, this is the productive economy in front of us, sitting here. So, what I propose is we hear from from you, Mike. What's your take on this?
5: After an
2: introduction like that. Um, (laughs) But it's it's really important
5: that uh, uh, what Leo says about. the automotive business and manufacturing. A lot of people think that manufacturing is just putting things together. Mm -hmm. But if you're not creating the product in the first place, uh, and that's design, innovation, technology, you've got nothing to manufacture. And one of the things that we've been doing in Jaguar Land Rover over the last uh, four or five years is saying we've got to regenerate uh, the product, what we call the product creation process. And part of that, um, is to recognise that 80% of our revenue comes from outside of the UK. So actually, although we're a UK-based company, the complexity of the world and the consumer world is a huge challenge for us. Uh, the person who buys a Range Rover Evoque in California thinks very differently about that product to say in Moscow or, or even here in the UK, and the. The way in which they view this subject of sustainability, however you define it, whether it's the profit motive, uh, a sustainable financial business, or increasingly the word sustainable is being used as a, as a kind of tag for environmental innovation. It's a, it's a very complex uh, uh, creation process that we have to manage. Now, as far as we're concerned, the, the question that's been begged up here is both. We we have to be financially sustainable to pay for our own future. And that's not about making profit and pocketing profit. The number of stakeholders that we have in terms of our employees, the suppliers that depend upon us for our business around the world, dealers, but most importantly our customers, of which uh, even uh, on a small business like ours, we've probably got about five million customers around the world. They are part of the extended enterprise that we have to think about. Um, And if we're not funding and making products that service that community, then we can't be sustainable. And I know from past experience, if you don't do that, and we've had a couple of near-death experiences, as you know, in the past, it becomes a very, very different type of business and a very different relationship you have with the community. The other side of the equation is very much... Where is this climate change environmental challenge going to go? Particularly for the automotive business. Uh, And there are all sorts of uh, quick solutions that have been offered. Legislators love saying, well, you should do this, you should do that, and that will solve the problem. But the reality, again, is very complex. And uh, we, in the company, over the last two or three years, we've worked on three areas where we think that we can tackle the climate change, environmental uh, uh, challenge. One is clearly on product, and I can talk over the next two days intensely about our product, but I'll just say one thing, it's not about electric engines. Um, Lightweight materials, other technologies are equally important to reduce CO2 or or uh, reduce gas uh, implications. Secondly, it's about what do we do for our physical infrastructure? We have five um, uh, manufacturing and engineering centres here in the UK. Uh, we're going to build another engine plant uh, <coughs> near Wolverhampton. And what is that? how do we do that in a way that's environmentally responsible as well as serving the purpose of being, uh, performing the function of making things? And uh, what we want to do with the engine plant is to do both, to make it an excellence of an environmental sustainable building but also being the, the world-class engine facility that it has to be to make us globally competitive. And thirdly, it's about our, our people. Um, in fact, when I, was, when I first got the invite here, when it said EI, we actually have a programme called EI Internally that we've been running, uh, so I thought I was on safe ground. But that, I- that is all about uh, all of our employees, all of our stakeholders being involved, in what we call the environmental innovation of the business. And, in, and frankly, if you don't engage all of our 20,000 employees and give them some freedom to do what, what they think is on that agenda, rather than mandate it from the centre, you don't make progress. And uh, it's a bit like quality or a whole load of other uh, endgame. You will never reach the destination because the, the, the goal will always change and it'll always get higher. But certainly in that context, uh, we, we feel that by liberating employees to think about things, come up with initiatives. Uh, we actually had Gary Neville come and present our environmental innovation awards a couple of weeks ago. And some of the things that came up from the, from the heart of our business were much more powerful than we could have done in a, in a, in a planning session at the centre. So liberating our employees and our stakeholders is, uh, is another method. So uh, that's uh, our perspective—it's very complex, but it's both the financial sustainability of the business and recognising the environmental implications.
2: Excellent.
4: Thank you. <laughs> Linda. Are you going to hang on? You can't just say Linda after he got the superhuman
2: thing. Okay. Her beauty is obvious. Her beauty is radiant. She is the, Excuse me. She is the brain on. On the workplace, all of us have read the shift. If you haven't read the shift, go and buy the shift. Am I doing well? Am I doing well? Am I doing the right thing? Good.
4: Stuff? That's excellent. Okay. Awesome. excellent you're well, awesome. ST book you. of the thank year you. or
2: something like that. I'm going to go on. Yeah, Linda yeah. is fantastic on the workplace. <laughs> Linda, you're meant to be introducing yourself, also to so help me, help me, help me out here. Um, you
4: know, thank exactly. you, Leo. Um, well, I, I wanted just to say a little bit about what we're doing uh, at London Business School uh, around some of these topics, uh, and I wanted really to begin. By um, asking you to think about what I would call some of the legacy challenges that we're facing right now in the world. And so, one legacy challenge would be youth unemployment. I was in uh, Spain last week, and those of you who know Spain well will know that it's experiencing 50% unemployment, child unemployment, youth unemployment at the moment, which is in fact, I was there to launch The Shift, which has done incredibly well in Spain, because The Shift is about the future of work, and the Spanish people are incredibly, incredibly worried about their children, and rightly so. Or if you take a look at child poverty, and you know we're lucky, very lucky to be very closely associated with uh, uh, Save the Children. In fact, Jasmine, who's the CEO these days, is... I would count as a, as a good friend. and I mean, one of the things about legacy challenges, like youth unemployment, like child poverty, is if you begin to take a look at them and you use the word stakeholder, what's very obvious is these are incredibly comp- complex problems with multiple stakeholders uh, playing in them. Uh, so, you know, for example, the case of uh, you know, youth unemployment, most governments, certainly the Spanish government, have a huge problem knowing what to do about that. I mean, some governments, the Singaporean government, for example, have been much better at that. But mostly governments don't know what to do. NGOs have goodwill but not necessarily the skills that are required. Um, you know, these fleets of, uh, of small you know, social entrepreneurship businesses that are trying to do something also have a role. But, but what it seems to me, it, and this is very much, you know, from what you're saying, is that, the, that multinationals have a very important role to play. And, um, you know, in, in a sense, I would say that because my research over the last 30 years has been in multinationals. And over the last six, uh, three years, we've been working with 60 uh, multinationals around the world on these these, this topic. And I want to very briefly say something about what, what I believe to be important. Um, what multinationals do is that they tend to be very good at their core competencies. So you know, if you're DHL, you know how to distribute stuff better than the World Food Organization does. Um, you know, if you're Tata consulting services, you know about how to train people better than the Indian government does. And so I, I believe that multinationals have a huge role to play in the future. And the, the book that I'm writing at the moment um, is about an invitation to them to step up to their responsibilities. And, and the point I'm making is this, that there are three spheres that multinationals now have to play in. Um, The first is, exactly your point, they need to build what I would call internal strength. I mean, they need to have the hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people who work with them, need to be thoughtful, insightful, provocative, creative, uh, and not incredibly stressed, so that they can play their role as citizens. And so that's the first thing. And they have to also think about the way they pay people, particularly in their distributed channels. The second is that they need to reach out to their immediate communities. So for example, Some of you may know a a company not particularly well-known in Europe, but a real icon in the U.S. called Zappos. Has anyone come across Zappos? Yeah. Well, what's interesting about Zappos right now is that they're building a great big new factory in Las Vegas. And rather than doing the Google thing, which is to make, or, or the emphasis thing, which is to make yourself a castle, a barrier, they've actually built it in a way that it it integrates into the community. You know, if you look at the cooperative bank right now, for for decades they've worked with their communities to help them understand how to uh, run cooperative societies. So the way they work in their communities is is crucial. And then finally, multinationals and i you know I, I know a number of you were, were, were at Davos this year with me and, and one of the things that I really struck me this year about Davos is that there's a uh, there 's a real understanding that the problems of the world have got to be solved in part by large institutions, and so they have got to step up to think about those large uh, challenges and we 're beginning to see that happening and again, the way that I would invite them to think about that is to think about the notion of core competencies. For them to use whatever it is they're good inside to use it outside. So for example one interesting thing that Google is doing right now, because Google as you know is very good at connecting people and it's currently connecting about 300 of the world's most violent gang members, ex-gang members and that was a very big deal connecting them by the way, because you have to find them and then you have to understand what they're doing, and then you have to connect them. So, so they're doing that. Infosys and Wipro, TCS right now, are training about a million teachers in India because India's education system, as some of you know, is just in a horrible mess right now. So, you know, there are opportunities. DHL, as you can imagine, is working with the World Food Organization, so there are opportunities for organizations to leverage their internal core competencies into the uh, external, the big challenges that we face in the world right now. And to do that, they have to understand, A, that collaboration is more important than competition, and, B, that the resources of the world cannot continuously be used without being regenerated. And there are a new uh, generation of CEOs who are, uh, who are coming up now who are very, very clear about that. So I feel a lot more positive about that than I ever would have done 10 years
1: ago.
2: Fantastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. You had some ideas about um, um, the role that Vodafone is playing um, in, its, in its global reach, precisely building on very nicely, uh-huh. I think, from, from what Linda has talking about there. Can you share that with us?
3: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think that the first thing I would say is that there is a tendency, particularly with big companies, to think that because they do sustainability with a capital S, they are sustainable, uh-huh. and uh, that isn't true. Um, Just to illustrate that before, I will pick up on the point that that Linda made. But to illustrate that, just a brief anecdote. As uh, as some of you know, I I flew in late last night from Athens. I spent most of this week in Greece. And um, I was reviewing what we are doing in Greece with our local communications team. And one of the points they made was their big priority... Um, is the social project focused on the orphanage and fostering association in Greece, which we support. And I said, okay, fine, that's interesting, interesting sustainability project. Why are we increasing our support? Answer, because in the last year, the number of children going into those orphanages has doubled. Um, And we've also found in the last year that two-thirds of those children are placed there for, quote, financial reasons. These kids are being brought to the orphanages by their parents because the parents can't afford to to feed and clothe them anymore. Um, and this is a country where you've seen a 60% increase in the suicide rates in the last two years where you have families of five or six people living on 600 euros a month who are soon to see that reduced to 400 euros a month, where teachers are reporting children fainting in the class during the day because they've missed one too many dinner or one too many breakfasts, um, where you see long queues of pensioners in the streets outside the electricity and the gas offices queuing to ask for their power to be turned off because they can't afford to pay the bills. So the point there is that sustainability is not about funding the orphanages, important though that is, it's about understanding the world of the parents who bring the kids to the doors of the orphanages. And where companies, particularly big companies, fail to be sustainable, it's not because they've failed to create a department called sustainability with a director and a manager and heads of and so forth, it's because they've lost sight of their customers' lives. They've stopped walking in the shoes of their customers, they've stopped thinking what the customers need. Um, And it's a constant risk for all big companies. Big companies are hard to change. They're like societies. They take a while to understand that the world has moved on. And it's no coincidence that if you speak to chief executives, they spend more and more of their time on internal cultural change, exactly to Linda's point, to try to force the organization every day To understand what are the people out of the window needing, feeling, doing. Because if you lose that, you lose your license to operate and you die. And perversely, in a way, where companies make the greatest difference, exactly to Linda's point, is where they see an opportunity to make money, but they see an opportunity to make money that happens to be incredibly sustainable and transformative for people's lives. So one small example in my industry, in my company, is a thing called M-Pesa. M-Pesa is an alternative currency uh, which we created. It was created basically by one guy who had the idea in our business in Kenya um, where millions of people have no access to banking. They have no means of saving money in case they hit a problem in their lives. And we use airtime, mobile telephone airtime, as a currency. It's secure. It's tradable. It can be held by a third party. And from an idea that idea in Kenya has grown to something that now represents every, every month 680 million transactions and the equivalent of 20% of the GDP of Kenya is passed through people's mobile phones. There are entire businesses that have been created, medium-sized enterprises that have been created purely through M-Pesa. Now, I'm not being disrespectful of sustainability professionals when I say this. I hope I'm not one, by the way, as you probably have worked out by now. Um, I think they would agree with me when I say this, that idea was not created by the sustainability department. That idea was created by the people in the business who spent their lives walking around talking to customers and realized here's a need that we can meet. And it is genuinely transformative. So I think the challenge for business actually is to look out of the window more and is to badge what they do less something that you would call sustainability with a capital s on that title up there and never to lose sight of what their customers need in this very difficult world because i would add to the list that you raised about the the individuals who are shaping our universe the most powerful force shaping certainly the developed world right now is the unemployed graduate of whom there are an astonishingly large number and in this country alone this country is wealthy and prosperous We have 89 graduates chasing every job, and research this week shows that a third of them who get a job are doing a job they could have got um, without GCSEs, menial labor. So that is the challenge, and it's a big one that certainly large companies are conscious of, but it's very difficult.
1: Thank you. I think, the, yeah, I was just going to frame it and say, I think the good news is is that we all seem to feel that that we're going through a kind of structural change. And what that means is that we can take out a clean sheet of paper and to start writing some new solutions, right? Mm-hmm. We're all assuming a kind of global um, uh, playground. We're assuming, I think, there's an inherent understanding of, and paces at its fore. It's a digital proposition, mm-hmm. right? Um, you talked about multinationals, and from what I see, entrepreneurs need multinationals for distribution the days are over where any any venture capitalist is going to give you 50 million to acquire 50 million customers you're going to have to do a deal with a big company to to roll that out and so i think um i guess i'm interested in exploring what those solutions specifically are and i think it comes down to who's the regulator right what role does government play because we're assuming that government plays a big role and i just wonder whether or not it really comes down to stop asking the question about what's government's role and, and looking to other kinds of bodies to self-regulate. Because there
2: should be a pretty light-touch government role.
1: Well, I'm just, you know, I'm just throwing that out. I'm just throwing that open, to, to I suspect,
2: that, by the way, that Julie is not exactly just throwing that out, that you've got, you got a view on that No, one.
1: no, no. No, actually, I'm Because I read totally in hard. the FT yeah.
2: a little piece you said where you were at Barcelona Airport once.
1: Barcelona Airport.
2: And you picked up this book by a lady called Ayn Rand.
1: That's true.
2: Extolling the virtues of the governmentless world and how that has been the most influential yeah. book in oh, your yeah. lifetime.
1: It, uh, Atlas Shrugged is an amazing book, and I'm not the only one who feels that way, There, Yeah. But
2: you do feel that there shouldn't be a role for the government. It's about I, liberating the individual entrepreneur and the less government, I do. the better. Well,
1: like Julia. I think that's the thing that Julia and I have always had in common. Oh, like that's Julia? Wait, that, you're,
2: you're, you're not validating this argument by saying that Julia agrees with you.
1: Yeah. Is,
2: that, is, that, is that your position?
1: I, I, I oh, get I'm the sense you're trying to I'm, corner me. To chair-
2: <laughs> yeah, we are the chair. And actually, okay, what we'd really, well, we'd, what we'd, really have do, what we'd really love to do, what we'd really love to do is throw this should open do, to the please? room. Yeah, yeah. We'd love to throw this open to the room. You've got various views out here. Please.
6: Leo, good to see you outing Julie as a, a, what was it? Is a, a Randy? Is that what someone... Excellent. Excellent. Just, Excellent. just so
1: you know, I like the book, but I'm not yeah. a follower of Anne Rand. Just so, I don't want that to get... To I
6: mean, how <laughs> easy is it to talk about sustainability when the imperatives on big corporations are actually a lot to do with financial engineering, a lot to do with the thing that Vodafone's come in the news about Switzerland, for example, this week. And in your business, for example, you know, advertising cars on empty roads when actually, presumably, one of the sustainability challenges we face is traffic management and transport policy. And how how does the Range Rover Evoque kind of fit into that context sustainably? Is that something you know, you're always going to think about it tangentially because actually the real imperatives on the business are being driven by
5: CFOs. It's a good question, and I think if, if I could just sort of take it from, a, from an automotive sense, um, we, we can't run our businesses just on, on you yeah, know, the CFO's view of life for two reasons. One is um, to the point that, that Mark was making. Uh, customers at the end of the day decide what they're going to do and customers um, have a lot of of power these days. Um, I can only speak about my industry, but I think something that's happened over the last 10 years with the growth of the internet, uh, information flowing much, much more freely, the power that people think that multinationals have on the end consumer I think is vastly overrated. Uh, The consumer is a very, very clever, quite rightly, uh, individual now and has choices and makes those choices in a very informed way. So the first reason is the customer will decide what he wants or she wants, what's, what's suitable for him, and put it into the context of their, their life and their environment. And interestingly, we did a lot of research about the, uh, the Range Rover Evoque uh, in, in, in cities. In fact, our whole launch um, for, the, for the car didn't have a single advert until we started making it. We actually launched the car using social media and particularly focusing on, on urban areas and metro areas to make sure that you know, we could connect with their, with their expectation of what a product like a Range Rover should look like in that new context for us. So I think businesses can, can move into another area leveraging, leveraging the technology. The other reason the CFO doesn't um, have all, all the power, as we've been through those days. You know, it, this, this view that businesses are just run by the finance, I mean, there may be some, but my experience of most mature global businesses now is that the boards are fairly spread. The CEO has a whole host of agendas to deal with, both internally and externally. And it's almost that the financial outcome is a result of all those other efforts rather than focusing on the financial objective first and then doing something about it. And those those are, in a financial sense, the sustainable businesses. Those are the ones that stay around.
1: I'm curious as to what, to what degree you mentioned social media, and I think the idea you mentioned the customer centricity is that a lot of that has to do with how much data you capture, right? And, and you become, over time partially of data business in terms of your knowledge of your consumers being able to predict better, which is what the question was. How do you predict uh, accurately?
5: Well, I, I've, you can tell from my age. I'm not an expert on things like Facebook mm-hmm. and, and, and all that. But there, there are some interesting views emerging about the power that, and if I'm using a cliche, I apologize, but Facebookistan. Mm-hmm. You know, there is, there is an interesting proposition, may happen, may not talk about governments, that in 10, 15 years' time, if there's 800 million people on Facebook, all connected with each other, all talking to each other, you know, why shouldn't they have a seat at the United Nations, mm-hmm. is, 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 is a view. Um, and I think you know, those are the sorts of, and, and technology and these new innovations move so quickly nowadays, you've got to be a fast corporation to keep up with them. Uh, And the customer data thing is hugely important. Mm -hmm. And customers, if they're they're with great brands, if I can use that phrase, they want to be part of the brand experience. It's not us controlling them. And Vodafone, I'm sure it's the same. Um, Both are great brands. If you speak to customers, they're tremendously enthusiastic. They offer so much in terms of feedback, particularly emotionally, actually, not in a rational sense. And that's a very powerful
2: relationship that we wouldn't want to give up. Okay, so we had a response, which really is sort of the customer who's got the right to decide, and you're just honouring the customer. Can we get a quick? Because you also made some very good, yeah, interesting I, points. Just, quick, just, and then just, please. Just, just, I,
3: I, it's a very interesting and important point. I mean, CFOs do not run companies, but actually, what underlies this is a much broader disconnect. So. I'm just on the sort of point of facts. I mean, a lot of what's been said about Vodafone attacks, the vast majority, is just materially untrue. But the reason why it's being said is very interesting. The reason why it's being said is because um, there is huge amounts of complexity in international tax law. Designed there for a reason, remember that governments market against each other internationally to try to attract business in, that creates tax codes that, gov- that companies then navigate to seek to optimize their tax position entirely legally and are encouraged to do so, as it were, by the international model. Now, that's been going on forever and is done by all, all companies. That's, that is completely standard practice. The reason why we're in the news is because the numbers are so much of a quantum higher than the norm, dating back to one acquisition uh, 10 years ago in Germany, which was £112 billion that yielded huge losses that in turn have a consequence in terms of our tax position. But that's actually not the disconnect. The disconnect is between why companies are doing this, which is about fiduciary duty to shareholders, because ultimately corporate tax is just an input cost for a company, It's passed on to the customer at the end of the day, versus returning funds to shareholders, which are supposed to be, in the popular capitalism model, the reason why everyone goes, okay, fine. multinationals that yield, in our case, 24 billion pounds in the last four years returned to shareholders. Half our shareholders are UK-based. Every UK investment fund and pension fund is a Vodafone shareholder. Ergo, theoretically, millions of UK savers and pensioners benefit directly from everything you just said. But it doesn't feel like that and it doesn't feel like that at the moment because people are worried about their jobs they're worried about their future they're they're worried about their kids and they feel increasingly disconnected from the companies the big companies that sell them services and that is i think the underlying factor ultimately i mean our, our feeling about all of this is that where you have a product that people love and trust and respect and are fully comfortable with as an industry these issues are much less to the fore. Where there is a sense of disconnect, back to the points I made earlier in my introductory remarks, that's where the problems begin. Um, Mark Orwell from the Wellcome Trust, but I'll also put on an India-UK CO forum have for this question. So sustainability means a lot of things, and it's difficult not to agree with Julie that if you don't make a profit, um, you can't sustain yourself. And I'd be interested, actually, to know who pays for the bed nets, but leave that aside for a second. Is the fact that Vodafone makes a lot of money for UK shareholders from India, the quid pro quo for the fact that Ratan Tata now owns Jaguar and Land Rover. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of national sustainability, which is obviously an economically important question at the moment, does it really matter that we have actually lost? Where do the profits now go from...
5: Yeah. Jaguar, Land Rover, the profits. The, Tata is a really interesting company, actually. A very interesting company. Um, and one thing about Tata is actually their raison d'etre, if we're talking about sustainability, I don't know uh, a better global company where the whole ethos of the company is for to return something back to society. Something like 4% of the gross revenue goes back into projects that are about contributing to the society. Largely about rebuilding India, but others around the world. The other thing they do is Jaguar Land Rover is owned by actually Tata Motors. Um, But their desire is that we become, to use the word, financially sustainable to our own business. So for example, the corporate bond we raised um, last year was raised on an entity called JLR PLC. No Tata guarantees, no Tata backup. Because what they want to do, and this is why they're such a terrific Uh, steward rather than shareholder, is they want to see our business flourish and be sustainable in the UK and everything is returned. So they they don't take a dividend. Every, Every bit of money that we make right now is reinvested in the product creation process
3: to pick up on the, the other half of your question, I hope we're not going to do too many of these kind of Vodafone Land Rover tag teams. But anyway, um, the, 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 I, I think underlying your question is almost an assumption that governments are so joined up that, you know, the Indian government's kind of kind to us in return for which, I mean, if only it were like that. Yes. <laughs> it's so not like that. Um, the, 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 the reality is that international businesses will seek markets where they think they can grow, and some of those markets are actually incredibly difficult. Our Indian business is growing very quickly, but India is a fantastically difficult operating environment, as several of you in the room will will know very well. Um, But the driving force, actually, for our business is growth. And growth means more customers, it means more customers doing more things, and India is our biggest growth market. The fact that the, the funds from our Indian business come back to our UK shareholders Right now, to be absolutely candid, is a tomorrow prospect rather than a now prospect because India remains a poor country. We have 140 million customers. They pay us very little money. We put $16 billion into India so far. We will get a return eventually, but it's a long-term investment. So um, the, these things are, are driven by an ethos that sort of ultimately, for companies that are sustainable in the truest sense, are driven by an ethos that says, here is a market need here is something that we think customers are going to love and they're going to want to buy more of, and that in turn will deliver growth in the longer term, rather than, for, certainly for a big business like ours, shareholder returns today.
4: I was just going to to mention and I, that... that... You know, one of the drivers, I think, of the world that we're living in is globalization. And you've spoken now about economic globalization, but what we're also seeing is, um, you know, the joining up of the labour market. So, you know, you'll know yourself that if your child is applying for one of the universities in the UK this year, they're not they're not competing with kids from the UK. They're competing from with kids from all over the world. And if they apply for a job, there will will be the same. I mean, there are labour arbitrage mechanisms like Odesk right now. I don't know if you've seen desk, which is the sort of eBay of labor. So you buy and sell labor, um, and there are world markets now for software engineers. You know, it's $8 an hour, and they mostly are coming out of the Ukraine and Russia. So, you know, there's, globalization is, isn't just economic globalization. It's also, you know, massive globalization of labor markets, which will which, by the way, is causing huge sustainability problems. I mean, youth unemployment is part of the globalization story. Uh, But also, joining up a generation, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you you here is whether you think Gen Y, those 27-year-olds, are going to, as a joined-up generation, the world's first joined-up generation, whether they're going to choose, make more choices based on sustainability in terms of the organisations that they join and indeed the products they buy. Can we buy. put that
2: to the room? That question. So the consumer is, is king, the consumer decides stuff, we've got new technologies that can create this Facebookistan and so we got this glorious vision where they could get together and decide to make sustainable choices and everything is going to be rosy. So let's put that to the room. Is Gen Y going to solve this and make entirely different generations to the decisions we've made. Please raise your hand if you think Gen Y is going to make different decisions. Okay, that is a Lib Dem style voting proportion. Okay, raise your hands if you're pretty confident they won't.
4: Hmm. Okay, that's very interesting. I'd love to hear from somebody who's got their hand up. Yeah. Why, why do you think that? Because there's a, there's you a huge debate going on about this, actually, in academia, which is very unresolved at the moment. A
2: doctor in the room. Give us, give us your
6: view. I think because... Um, I'm Harvey Goldsmith, so...
2: Give us your view, I Harvey. <laughs>
6: um, I think it's because we have currently, in the main... Uh, created a generation that don't have enough confidence in themselves hmm. because we've spent too much time, A, berating them, and B, not allowing <clears throat> that confidence growth to, to be instilled inside them. I think the next hmm. generation, beyond the current ones that are growing search, up, yeah. who have real problems, um, yeah. certainly will change everything that we do now and our total thought process going forward forward. And it, it's partly because I think government has completely lost the will or the plot of how to deal with young generation, even though in our country, this is probably the youngest government we've ever had. Yeah. They haven't got the faintest idea of what they're doing. And they keep coming up with some plonker who walks around on a bicycle with shorts on who's currently going back to America with these big ideas, big society, big this, is going to help the youth. It's complete crap. And so um, we've we've pummeled youth today. There are always people that will escape through and and will change things, but it's going to take another generation before they really react and then do something about it. Mm, Which leads me on to a question I'd like to ask all of you. Mm. Do you actually think that government today are helping to sustain business, or are they a real hindrance?
3: Which government? I know,
4: you'd have to ask which government. They're all different. Yeah, they're all different. Choose any one of 10. You you choose. Let's let's uh, choose the UK, let's choose the UK, we're in the UK, let's choose the UK. If it was Singapore, and I'm not necessarily saying Singapore, but actually the answer would have to be yes. You know, the, the answer in Singapore, I mean, there are governments around the world who are absolutely linking up uh, universities. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Singapore has such low uh, youth unemployment, by the way, one of the lowest in the world is because the government, in fact, I'm on their advisory panel, so I know this, um, they link universities with corporations, and they ask a very simple question to the corporations. They say, what is it you would like people to do in the future? And you say, I want this set of skills. And they went to universities and then say, could you now do that? And then they say to young people, by the way, if you want to get a job in the next five years, this is... These are some of the. So, yes, Singapore, yes, but I don't
2: know. Wolframpton, you said a £355 million factory opening up with some valuable government support or not? Um, Interesting question.
5: Competitively, probably not. Yes, there was a £10 million grant. If we'd have made that investment in another country, virtually any other country in the world, the size of that government support would have been significantly greater. So. The, the, the government support is not there. I, I think it's a really interesting question because our experience, being quite candid, is it's mixed, I think. In our industry, one of the biggest problems is um, engineers. Engineers in a in a, in, a, in a in a technical sense of the word. Um, so an initiative that the government have launched to have uh, UTCs, which are these university technical colleges where kids can choose to go there from the age of 14, so they're quite mature, probably made up their mind that they want to pursue a career. Business can influence the curriculum to make sure that the output relates to our requirements. I think it's probably an example of an interestingly good initiative. The problem is it's going to take five years to sort out. There's some other ones, Harvey, where I could spend a long time saying... They probably don't get it. there's been
7: a lot of stop and start, hasn't there, with these initiatives? Well, the other other thing is
5: consistency. In in, in any business, uh, you know, a a short period of electoral term is not long enough. Our investment periods are five minimum, five years minimum, probably ten years. So you have to plan through the possibility of two changes of government. And if that's a change of political persuasion as well, it's very difficult to make okay. really robust questions, questions stacking up, so let's can rattle through, Linda thing, then. Can then, I just say one
4: that. thing, which is about China? I mean, one of the interesting things about China, which I think is you know, very worrying for those of us who've got children who have been competing against China, is that Chinese corporations, their role is to build Chinese society. I mean, that's absolutely straightforward. And, you know, if it means that there won't be unemployment, there will not be any youth unemployment. It's just simple. And I think, you know, so what we're having globally is these huge ideological battles around what the role of government is and what the role of corporations are. And there is a massive difference at the moment between Chinese corporations that are there to build Chinese society And, you know, corporations in the West, which don't see it as their role to do so. Um,
3: Just to go with Harvey, there's not much point, to be honest, in talking about any European government without talking about the European Commission. And the European Commission for certainly any infrastructure business is stuck in a time warp pre-2007 crisis and is a much bigger problem than any one national government.
1: Yeah, I was just going to add, I was at, um, at a lunch actually where the CEO of Vodafone, Vote, Vittorio Colau, and it was one of the other board members who was quoting, because I think you held your board meeting out in San Francisco, the last yeah. one. And, and there was somebody who had presented the impact of, you know, schools, pr- primary up to 12 years old, that have iPad, and everybody's learning on an iPad, using the best of digital technologies, which is what you would expect in Palo Alto, right? And I mean, the, and the, not surprisingly, the exam scores were really improving when the means when the mechanism was there. The kids were learning better, and I do think one point I would say about the current government in the UK, which I don't agree with everything they do, but I think that there's an interim step that they have done by opening up the schools as a platform and saying some people will want to run schools differently. Let's allow them that choice to set up schools. I would argue that, to, to Linda's point, we need to be clear that we expect big business to play that role in, in you know, funding society and getting behind it, because I think we could be very surprised if we made it clear that large uh, enterprises could get behind schools and to fund you know, massive investment in technologies. I'm not sure they're being asked. I'm not sure they're being asked to do that.
0: I just wanted to come back to your point about the sort of rosy view about the benefits of globalization because what I'm seeing, particularly in this current economic climate where the distrust of capitalism, democratic capitalism particularly, is high, state capitalism being challenged, that the actual globalization is seriously under threat. And labor, I mean, you know, look at the restrictions coming into this country and around the world. And I think we are really going in danger of going backwards. And I think that will really hinder the, the, all the talk we're talking about sustainability. Because actually, when you look at the word sustainability, that's about maintaining the status
1: quo. And we actually should be going beyond that. At the moment. Quick comment from Linda?
7: No,
1: I agree. I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. That's fascinating. Maintaining the status quo at all. I think of it as growing the pie. If you're not growing, you're dying. It's a slow death. Yeah. But if you're not growing, you're not sustainable. But, but the sustainable point you're making... The point you're making is the definition of it. Right?
4: The point you're making, though, is there's now a push against globalization, and, and I can see that. And I think, by the way, that will increase. Also, as a, as a business, a public Through business, risk.
3: if you cease to grow,
8: you cease to exist as an independent entity. Peter York, I just wanted to say it's just an observation that the rather facile cult of entrepreneurialism—not real entrepreneurialism—but the idea of entrepreneurialism, as we had it taught is absolutely antithetical to creating sustainable businesses, i.e. businesses which behave well, grow, and make old bones and are highly adaptive because it's very corrosive of old-fashioned corporate loyalties. It's very corrosive of the ability to recruit the brightest and the best. It's very... It fosters a culture of... um, financial engineering. So entrepreneurialism, as recently taught, the rhetoric of new entrepreneurialism makes sustainability impossible.
1: When I mention entrepreneurs, I'm talking about the 4.8 million SMEs in this country and Nesta, the innovations agency in the UK, has twice done a report that shows that the 6% of all companies which are defined as high growth. So some percentage of those 4.8 million SMEs are high growth businesses. They create 54% of all the new jobs. I don't see how that can be corrosive. There's bad entrepreneurs out there just like there's bad people. I don't, the, the group of people that we work with um, that are building digital businesses, I don't feel a lot of financial engineering. I just see 100-hour work weeks amongst all of them, building businesses that are...
8: Rhetoric and delivery. I'm not talking about British SMEs
0: waiting longer
8: than I have. Oh, so you're doing on his <laughs> behalf.
0: <Yeah. laughs> oh,
2: at, at home, she's Partners. called the
6: authorities, so that's good. Um, <laughs> Andrew and George, nobody's given an example of a sustainable company, so here's one. It's been in business for 128 years, 21 million customers a week, 80,000 employees, a supply chain in the UK of 250,000 and worldwide 2 million. Yes, it's Marks & Spencer, the largest clothing retailer in the UK. And our experience at M&S when we launched Plan A was that we would put 40 million a year to spend on being more sustainable. The result is that we have saved 50 million pounds on average every year of Plan A. Every time we do the right thing, we make more money.
2: Is there a follow-up family question was that just a support?
7: I put my hand up with the first round of people to say that I think the youth will change things. And one example is, particularly through new media, um, the organisation Avaz that brings together hundreds of thousands of people online with issues that then the government are being forced to address, which recently um, did a, got those people together through Avaz through all sorts of different things, And said, if you're not happy with your um, electricity and gas providers, sign this petition. And now they've got hundreds of thousands of people as a sort of group that they can go to, all the gas and energy suppliers, saying, we object to the high prices. So people are coming up with really creative ways of, of joining together and then having influence on governments, you know, maybe, maybe government, governments are passe. Well, and
1: also just to react to that, I think people are finding ways of just reacting to good behaviour and bad behaviour. And in a world where we need to drive growth, where we see examples of Marks and Spencers, you hear something like that, you want to go to Marks and Spencers. You hear examples of the banks that were selling, uh, mis-selling PPI insurance, I tell you it's enough to want to change your bank if you went through that experience. You know, you see examples of that and you change your behaviour as a result. And, and that's why I think the sustainability has to be tied to growing the pie. Because that's the only way that you get you know, parents to be able to take care of their kids in, in Greece, is if everybody has a job, if the economy is growing a lot of these things, take care of themselves. I
7: think it might be helpful if people say what they mean by sustainability. Because it seems to me from this discussion that everybody is choosing to define it in their own way. And perhaps yeah. if we could define it a bit more closely, we might have a more rigorous discussion.
2: Aye, aye, aye. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. and it will take hours. Yeah. It will take hours. Okay, let's, give, let's throw down the gauntlet. In less than 10 words. Less oh, than 10 like words.
5: And less than 30 seconds.
2: It's financial and
5: environmental, and it's the survival and the growth of the business. Excellent. I, I,
0: it's,
4: it's, it's human capital, and it's uh, the creation of innovation and sustaining human,
1: human beings. Are you growing the... Ecosystem you're in or not?
3: Enhances society, enhances community, enhances returns to shareholders. All three. On,
2: mm. <laughs> <laughs> Delivering on basic needs. Can, can the wife speak? <laughs> <laughs> With the point, sorry. <laughs> yeah, wife, sorry, <laughs> yeah, wife, wife, wife. No.
0: Um, Mary Loudon, just two things. One is I wanted to just respond to something Linda said about uh, China. If you want no unemployment, it's simple. Um, There are jobs for everyone. It's easier for the Chinese to expand for the very simple reason they currently have more space. When they run out of space because they've built on it, they will have a different set of problems. Um, So I I just wanted to respond in that. way. I'm sure you disagree with me. No, no, I don't. And I think actually
4: China faces incredible problems in the future. We we haven't even spoken of the the one-child family, which I think is a social experiment that's beyond imagination, frankly. Um, but uh, th- th- I just simply wanted to make an observational point that Chinese companies are owned in part by the government, and that's the role that they've been given. I didn't want to say it was a good thing or a bad thing. I just wanted to make an observation that there's a different government process taking what place. What is happening
3: at the same time, though, is you have a new generation of Ch- Chinese coming through who want leisure time. Who want to have a different lifestyle? Yes, you see inflation rising and so yeah. forth. So yeah. it's it's yeah. it's it's not a um, it's not an endless conveyor belt.
0: Uh, there was just one of the tiny things, just Harvey. But maybe we could talk about this after Harvey made the um, comment that we uh, the, the youth, the generation Y, has been a, a generation that's been berated and is therefore underconfident. I'm I'm interested in, in why Harvey thinks that. I'm not disagreeing at all. It's disturbing as a mother of children who are aged 11, 9, and five. A, yeah, those the are next gen, gen Z. They're fine. Yeah. Does anyone, yeah. by the way, agree, does anyone well, agree not with fine, Harvey? they're It's a, it's a different generation. Well. Yeah. Do people agree yeah. with Harvey? Are yeah. we if berating agree, the? Have we yeah. berated our youth? Yeah. Are they berated? And if so, in I... what way? I'm just are they berated
2: or are they coddled,
0: <laughs> or both?
4: Well, we've coddled them think... and then we've stopped them, and, with, then, we uh, them. and then there's no jobs I think, for them.
2: I think. Can I ask? Looking ourselves, it's not pretty you and
5: I are on the same page on this. The problem is is we're
6: not looking at ourselves but then we're asking our children to take responsibility
4: for yeah,
2: things I we mean, do. Shouldn't automobile vehicles have in the next 10-15 years 75, 80 miles to the gallon? We have the technology. Why aren't we doing anything about it? I mean, <laughs> sustainability means keeping the planet alive. And, our planet is and can I ask another question? If that's what it means, and we're going to have a really rigorous debate on this, then we've got to address that question. You could have every business in this room doing what would be best in class in terms of sustainability, but with the population growth that we've got, are we actually going to have that planet? Do people believe that there is that possibility? The question is, can a group of sustainable businesses really deliver on the environmental and social challenges that we've got absolutely can we just end, because it's time I know it trivialises this, but can we just end can we just end with a show of hands of those who believe there is optimism on that and can sustainable businesses actually solve the mega environmental social challenges we face, raise your hands if you're optimistic I'm sorry the question is so badly phrased with help, with help, maybe with government help And can we, with a lot of government help. Okay, then raise your hand if you are firmly, adamantly in opposition to that. Okay, that is a triumph of optimism in this room. And on that note, we will be thrown off this stage by Julia. Thank you so much to this brilliant panel. Thank you, thank you, thank you.